Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, everyone, to the History of England. This is episode 252, and for Henry VIII, it's Judgment Day. This episode is sponsored by Hall's Hammered Coins. You will find out why in a minute, but for the moment, if you're interested in brilliant original coins from Celtic times through to the Stuarts, go to www.hallshammeredcoins.com or go to the History of England website and click on the link. So barely a month ago, we laid Henry VIII in his grave after more than a year in his company. I was exhausted, I have to tell you, which is probably only the half of what you poor people are. Since then, we've had a bit of a breather, which is always good, a chance to reflect, to consider, to create some distance between us and our subject. And now, as promised, I think it's time. I think it's time for us to put Henry behind us. But to really do this, I think we need to take a step back, reflect together on his reign and his legacy, and also carefully and honestly agree what we all think of the big man. As I went about this, a rather remarkable thing struck me, actually. It probably struck you ages ago, but it just struck me right now when I went through the process of constructing a list of quotes about Henry over the ages, which you can find on the website, by the way. They're fun. Now, the world is festooned with books about Henry VIII. This isn't the big reveal, by the way. It's building up to that. You may need to be patient till I get to the point. The world is festooned with books, articles, teleprograms, podcasts, website, all about Henry VIII. New ones are coming out all the time, and when they do, the message, nine times out of ten, I swear on the grave of Leicester Tigers, is, hey, look, here's this new book, programme, whatever, and bravely, controversially, it's going to change our perceptions of Henry the Great Magnificent King. It's going to set the record straight and show him as the weasel he really is, horrid bloke, puppy strangler, and worse. 
Quite apart from the question of whether or not there could be anything worse than a puppy strangler, this is very odd. Because as far as I can see, a reasonable proportion of historians since time immemorial have been telling us Henry was a worm. Even the wildly positive ones like A.F. Pollard admit that on a personal level, he was more than a little flawed. Plus, the rest of us appear to absolutely hate him, even worse than the historians. There are derogatory comments about him throughout the intertubes. I noticed that in a poll of historical writers, Henry VIII was voted the worst king of all time. Good golly, Miss Molly. As far as I can see, there are few kings in English history more reviled, so I'm not sure why we need any more books rubbishing his reputation. If anything, we need some to introduce a bit of balance back into the game. After over a year reading up about the chap, in fact, it's almost comical. Everyone wants to give as little credit to him as possible. The definitive naval historian Rogers refuses Henry any foresight for the English Navy. There are streams, figuratively streams, of Catholic historians condemning the English Reformation as a disgraceful top-down affair visited on a horrified populace for nothing but Henry's greed and desperate desire for a bit of nookie on the sofa on a Friday night. Folks howl with contemptuous laughter at Henry's pathetic showing on the military and diplomatic battlefield. Now, if you can remember back to the first episode on Henry, number 210, on the 2nd of April 2017, you might remember that I started in that place, actually. Sick of the bloke. Why does everybody think he's so great? So on and so forth. And do you know that the storm of abuse thrown at the big man's head has hit a small, stubborn spot in me? It's not an impressive sight, this little spot. It looks thin, pale and a little rubbery. Stubborn is not my middle name, but nonetheless, there's a bit of underdogging going on in my heart, in a good way, obviously. So, I thought what would be good would be to have a go at getting a bit of balance going here, and I know just the people to do it, the History of England listeners. Here's how you and I are going to do it. In this episode, I am going, as passionately as I can, present first the anti-Henry case and then the pro-Henry case in a polemical kind of way. The case for the prosecution, the case for the defence sort of thing. After you have listened carefully and taken notes, then I think we should have a vote and maybe just maybe a full and frank exchange of views and I hope that you will decide to take part in that full and frank exchange of views. The vote will be on the History of England website and you will be asked to choose one of a series of quotes from historians past and present. The quote which best represents your view. You will not enjoy this because you will want nuance. You will want to mule and puke and have a slightly different quote or a combination of quotes, but you can't have nuance. You will have to make the best of a bad job. I'm sorry, it's a hard world. If you are kind enough to make the best of a bad job and take part, there will be a prize draw. Yeah, All participants in the vote will be entered into a prize draw for two prizes. Firstly, a Henry VIII halfpenny, and second, an Edward III halfpenny. Meanwhile, I will start a Facebook post where we can all have a chat if you're Facebookers, or you can comment on the website, of course, if you're not. I will present the prizes after I've carefully fixed the vote by adding the required number of pregnant chads at the start of my episode on the 29th of July. While I'm on it, there will be extras for members. I realise this is divisive and elitist and I apologise for that, but the thing is that one good turn deserves another, as my grandmother might have said. So, members, there will be a bumper Henry VIII quiz just for you and everyone who takes part in that bumper Henry VIII quiz, no matter how paltry their score, will be entered 
for a further prize. The prizes are also a Henry VIII and Edward Haepner's, which is a bit weird, but don't get confused, they are different ones. All of these coins have been donated absolutely free by Simon Hall of Hall's Hammered Coins. This is very kind and I'm very grateful. Plus, Simon gave me some extras just for fun, which is even nicer. I even managed to correctly identify one of them. Go me. Anyway, I have again put a link to Simon's website. Do go and have a look at some fantastic coins. Okay, onward. Here then are the quotes which you are going to be given to choose. They will be on the website since you'll want to carefully think them through. The first is from J.J. Scarisbrick, still Henry's definitive biographer, originally writing in 1968 and updated in 2011. Scarisbrook was not positive about Henry, but unlike many, actually, he managed to be balanced and find the good and the bad. His final judgment actually allowed Henry some context of what kings are generally like in the 16th century, but for the purposes of this quiz, I have found the most negative part of the quote that he produced. But for the purposes of this quiz, I have used the most negative quiz I could find from him. Rarely has the unawareness and irresponsibility of a king proved more costly of material benefit of his people. Okay, the second one is from another great historian, G.R. Elton. It is almost entirely negative about Henry, but alludes to successes in his reign, but gives credit for those elsewhere. Elton was a bit of a Cromwell fan, of course. An egocentric monstrosity whose reign owed its successes and virtues to better and greater men about him. Most of its horrors and failures sprang more directly from the king. The historian David Lodes, who provides our third quote, is more positive. OK, he takes the common approach of accepting that Henry's personal characteristics left a bit to be desired, but he gives Henry considerable credit, not just that the legacy he left was significant and in some ways positive, but that Henry had a hand in it. It was not just the men around him. We are, in fact, perfectly entitled to regard Henry as one of the political architects who transformed medieval England into a modern nation-state. Whatever judgment we may pass on his faith or his morals, his achievements justify his historical stature. For the last quote, I go to A.F. Pollard and have combined two of Pollard's quotes to make the most positive possible judgment, describing Henry as a statesman, giving him credit and blame for all that happened in his reign, emphasising the most positive outcomes. You might want to ignore whether you happen to view empire as a positive or negative thing, simply taking the point to be that England would become part of the world's most powerful nation for a while, namely Great Britain. Here's the composite quote. The king and statesman who led England down the road to parliamentary democracy and empire. As I say, I appreciate that these four statements are not entirely mutually exclusive, and that is just tough, I'm afraid. You have to choose the least imperfect one. Let me start off then with the case for the prosecution, which of course is a reasonably straightforward job, just a restatement as clearly and succinctly as possible of what is so self-evident as to have become orthodoxy, not controversial anymore. Just to stress that point again, it's become orthodoxy now to regard Henry as destructive, willful, self-centred, a king who dragged his realm into directions they never wanted to go, a blood-soaked tyrant, England's Nero. There is a problem, though, in that Henry's tyrannies and multiple failures have always been masked by the talents that he did possess. Physically, there's no doubt that Henry was impressive. 
in different ways in his young years to his old, but a big, powerful man. As a young man, there's no doubt he was welcomed as the new Renaissance prince and lived up to that image in many ways. And he maintained a glittering and fascinating court and was a master of propaganda, dazzling his contemporaries and us too, to a degree. But this is a feature of the tyrant, is it not? This focus on selling an image. And that will be the focus around which I will hang this view of Henry, that he was, or at very least became, a bloodthirsty tyrant, whose own will and desires were the only guide for him, rather than what was good for his people. A tyrant who certainly changed England forever, but not as a matter of policy, but from the unforeseen consequences of his blundering and uncontrolled passions. The thing that is almost never disputed, or very rarely indeed, is that Henry was a man with a deeply unattractive character. I will let a contemporary of Henry's speak for me, one John Eliot, writing in the 1540s. He was a man of quick and subtle wit, but therewith he was wonderful, sensual, unstable and wandering in his sundry affections, delighting sometimes in voluptuous pleasures and other times in gathering of great treasure and riches, often resolved into a beastly rage and vengeful cruelty about the public health of his country, always remiss, in his own desires, studious and diligent. The dazzling things about Henry are all a bit trivial. He had great energy as a younger man, he was personally charismatic, good at sport, all that. When it came to the qualities of a good leader, such as a clear vision and a strategy to carry it out, we come up with a blank. In fact, for much of his reign, Henry simply delegated many of his responsibilities. For the better part of 20 years, Wolsey had to trick him to gain his attention by taking him baubles to look at while he put papers in front of him to sign. As Elton's quote points out, it is Cromwell that achieves many of the most significant developments of his reign. Only after Henry had judicially murdered his most faithful servant in 1540 did Henry clearly take a direct role, and this is a period marked by confusion and vicious political infighting. What everyone also agrees on is that Henry had the most extraordinarily flexible conscience. He was able to convince himself, for example, that Anne Boleyn was indeed guilty of crimes of which he was clearly not guilty, or convince himself that he'd been living in sin with Catherine of Aragon when it became expedient to think so. And even that judgment is giving him a lot of credit. We've no real evidence that he didn't simply act in cold blood. He simply pretended to be convinced of these things. The main talent he had as a leader was ruthlessness, and he was rather over-endowed with that. Scarisbrook put this rather well when he wrote, It is difficult to think of any truly generous or selfless action performed by him. And Walter Raleigh made the same point. Henry's capacity for destroying those around him who he seemed to have loved or seemed to have served him well, with dizzying speed, was quite remarkable. Wolsey, Cromwell, Catherine of Aragon, Thomas More, to name but a few. With some of these people, there's a revolting element of deception too. Think of Anne Boleyn at the May tournament, completely unaware of the train about to roll over her. Think of Robert Ask, who loyally stayed the hands of the rebels of the Pilgrimage of Grace, who came to Westminster to be granted the full charm and reassurances of his king, only to be brutally executed a few weeks later. Henry's behaviour with his wives was viewed with incredulity and mockery in the courts of Europe. Henry was a man without honour whose promises were completely unreliable. This instability of character fed a culture of faction at his court which would have astonished his father and grandmother who would never have allowed such a situation to occur. Henry was a weak man who could be manipulated and his weakness generated politics of unimaginable poison. 
Let us then focus on a few specific areas of his actions. One of the things most people know about Henry was his obsession with a male heir and the various consequences that flowed from that. Often, it is passed over just how unnecessary this was. It is excused as just one of those features of the time when, in fact, there were alternative approaches available. One would have been to accept that there would be a female heir and prepare England and the world for that. After all, this had happened before. Henry I had not thrust aside his wife when his only son died in the white ship. Another approach would have been to focus on the potential male heirs and groom them for the succession. Henry had a choice. His mania over a male succession, even in the context of the age, was excessive and obsessive. His handling of the divorce proceedings were incompetent. In his arrogant high opinion of his theological skills, Henry chose a particularly purist approach to gaining an annulment, whereas Wolsey advised going under the radar and using a technicality. And, of course, Henry's approach spectacularly backfired. Henry's treatment of his daughter, Mary, is utterly brutal, requiring her complete submission before she would be re-admitted to court, separating her from her own mother. While we are on the consequences of Henry's obsession, we come to Henry's reformation. Now, whatever you think of the rights and wrongs of the religions at stake, which is not for here, Henry's motivation, at least initially, was fuelled by three main considerations, and none of them were laudable. One was his obsession with a male heir, which, as I have said, was unnecessary. A second was his desire to marry Anne Boleyn. Reginald Pole, at the time, roundly accused Henry of destroying the unity of the church simply for, quote, the lust for a girl. And he had a point. And thirdly, Henry was eager to get his grubby hands on the riches of the church. He doesn't take the trouble to hide this. He wrote to James V of Scotland, specifically telling him what a great idea it was, and his letters talk of how he could use the church's wealth to increase his royal power. And so, the English Reformation had the indignity to be tainted with Henry's lust and greed. In the course of that Reformation, Henry tore up a thousand-year tradition and relationship with the Pope, and we are left with Eamon Duffy's lament that we no longer have a spiritual head independent of the state, and a painful break was made with the universal church, creating borders where none had existed before, cutting the English off from their past. The royal supremacy was based on a made-up claim of imperium, no one believed it. The break was clearly illegal. The break with Rome was also unnecessary. The French, for example, would later achieve a national church without needing to tear up a relationship with the Pope, and so would Spain. It transpired that the Pope was perfectly capable of recognising the needs of these nation-states. Recent scholarship has shown that the vast majority of Henry's subjects were not clamouring for the removal of the medieval church, that it was in many ways vibrant and successful, and the result, therefore, was a level of religious discord that England had never had before, and which sent lasting division and disunity deep into English society. None of this was helped by Henry's bungled theology, which moved once towards the evangelicals and then back again to the conservatives in a way that increased the uncertainty and confusion of his subjects. At times in the late 1530s and 40s, it was very difficult to know what a loyal subject was supposed to believe, and taken together with the executions and burnings for political and religious reasons, England was gripped by an atmosphere of suspicion, fear and dread. And finally on Henry's Reformation... Henry swept away a thousand-year tradition of monasticism, stole the wealth of the church, buying the favours of his political classes by selling it off to them all cheaply. 
In the process, he was responsible not just for removing the support and tradition on which his subjects had relied, but also for more destruction of beautiful buildings and works of art than the Puritans. But the worst of this was that the money he raised was used to no great purpose, but was squandered away in pointless, unsuccessful wars and royal palaces to the despair of conservative and evangelical alike. And that despite the grandiose plans made in the preambles to the Parliamentary Acts, all the grandiose plans announced in the Acts of dissolution to endow religion and education ended up coming down to just the creation of six new dioceses. It's well known that when Henry first came to the throne, England breathed a sigh of relief to be saved from the increasing paranoia and miserliness of Henry VII. There is continuing confusion about how we went from this handsome, dashing, relaxed Renaissance prince to the cruel, bloated, bloodthirsty tyrant of the 1540s. Some have turned to physical explanations, the jousting accident after which Henry was unconscious for a few hours, or the jousting accident that caused an injury to his leg, leading to constant pain from a leg ulcer. Now, I suspect these physical issues may well have accentuated Henry's descent into tyranny, but equally, I don't think it's necessary to explain it. The evidence was there from the beginning. Empsom and Dudley might well have been unpopular, but they had only been following Henry VII's orders, and the callous ease with which his son, Henry VIII, ordered their executions in 1510 was a pointer for the future. All that cruelty was there right from the very beginning. Before we go too much further down the tyranny route, it's probably worth having a definition of what we're talking about. So, I had a rootle, a most satisfactory activity on a Sunday morning, I have to tell you. I had a rootle around the ancients. The word tyrant comes from an ancient Greek word, tyrannos, and it meant absolute ruler. Initially, the term described the rule of a single individual, whether by force or with the tacit or formal consent of the people. But by the 5th century BC, Tyranny had acquired its more familiar association of unjust, illegitimate and lawless rule. Plato and Aristotle, no less, described tyranny as a corrupt form of monarchy in which the society serves the tyrant's ambitions and egotism. That again, where society serves the tyrant, not the other way around as it should be. Those original connotations still survive, but by Henry's time the word tyranny also charged the ruler with either obtaining power unconstitutionally or with ruling in defiance of the laws and customs over citizens who are thereby metaphorically enslaved by his behaviour. The 17th century philosopher John Locke defined tyranny as the ruler's irresponsible substitution of private for public ends. He saw tyranny as an abuse of the power by which citizens have consented to be governed. Tyranny involves violation of the law. Wherever law ends, tyranny begins if the law be transgressed to another's harm. In addition, the Oxford English Dictionary gives one of its meanings as a king or ruler who exercises his power in an oppressive, unjust or cruel manner. So, in summary, rule in defiance of law, a ruler that makes the right of the state inferior to their own needs, who rules cruelly and oppressively. Henry VIII can be convicted of all of these. As far as law is concerned, let us take the perversion of justice first. Thomas More was the greatest jurist of his day, and in his silence he knew he had the defence of the law. And yet he was convicted. Anne Boleyn was served with a series of transparently trumped-up charges. 
Quite what the Duke of Norfolk was guilty of was far from clear even to the man himself, and you might wonder how it is that a man of such signal loyalty was ever convicted of treason as he was in 1547. The answer, of course, is that he wasn't. He was attainted in Parliament, so that no one had to go through the bother of a trial with all that requirement to produce evidence and pay off a jury, I mean convince a jury. After 1536, the use of attainder was an increasingly used device by Henry to avoid all that fuss and bother. This warping of the judicial system was accompanied also by perversion of the law itself. Henry introduced a group of laws so draconian that they were repealed almost as soon as he was dead. One demanded the penalty of being boiled to death for poisoning, another was the new law of treason itself. Even at the time the act produced outrage, for the first time mere words could send you to the gallows for treason. An even more pernicious act was the 1539 Act of Proclamations, which allowed the king to issue decrees, bypassing Parliament altogether. The fact that laws like these were repealed so swiftly once Henry was gone reflects the fact that during his reign Henry might well have used Parliament, but only because he never for a moment imagined it would dare to deny him anything. Just to complete the picture, if there's one classic example of refusing to accept the rule of law, it must lie in retrospective legislation. Everyone would agree, would they not, that passing a law so that you can try and execute someone for an action which was not illegal at the time they did it must be tyranny. Well, this happens at least in the case of Catherine Howard, where the Royal Assent by Commission Act was quickly passed to make it treason for a Queen consort to fail to disclose her sexual history to the King, just to make sure Catherine couldn't escape the gallows. As far as the second element is concerned, that is, subjecting the rights of the state to the rights of the individual, the king, there is general agreement that Henry's was the most monstrous ego, and that his wishes were all that mattered to him. Charles de Marillac, the French ambassador, understood the extent of Henry's self-interest in 1540 when he wrote... Henry is so greedy that all the riches in the world would not satisfy him. To make himself rich, he has impoverished his people. Henry's entire reign was a dedication to his ego and personal needs before all must bow. The Pope must be cast off so he could marry. The monasteries must be dissolved so he could use the money to go to war. Maybe the worst of all three, though, is Henry's cruelty and brutality, another trademark of the tyrant. The list of executions and burnings in the name of the law is unprecedented in English history, or at least since we have records. To take one example, take the 18 Carthusian monks who refused to abjure their religious views. One group of them was hanged, drawn and quartered at Tyburn, as were the second group a month later. The third group were hanged in chains over the walls at York until they starved to death. And the fourth group starved to death chained back-to-back in Newgate Prison. These were just part of a series of heresy burnings on a scale unheard of in England, 81 in Henry's reign by one estimate, compared to 24 in Henry VII's reign. Then the Pilgrimage of Grace saw something like 200 men, women and children join them. The list of political victims runs like a list of the great and the good, Empson, Dudley, Buckingham, Moore, the Boleyns, Cromwell, Surrey. But possibly worse than any of those, was the death and the aged and innocent Margaret Pole. Surely no threat to anybody, executed simply because Henry couldn't get at his arch-critic Reginald Pole. I have two more points to make. One is about economics, rarely a subject that gets people excited, unfairly in my view, but I will keep it brief. 
Henry's reign saw the most extraordinary windfall any English monarch has ever been lucky enough to find behind the sofa of state. We've discussed already that Henry used all of this money on the most trivial of destinations, war, palaces and the old fancy codpiece. Though I have to say I find it hard to begrudge a man a nice codpiece, but did he really need all those 55 royal palaces? 55! Anyway, the point is that by the time Henry came to his final foray in the 1540s, he'd spent it all and his efforts to raise sufficient money to go to war yet again led him back to desperate measures. The return of forced loans and benevolences, taxation of the church and people, but worst of all, it led him to a devaluation which had been sternly resisted before by previous kings. 16% of gold coin and 64% of silver. Just as an aside, eventually the layer of silver on his coinage became so thin that it would wear off with use revealing the copper below. This happened particularly on Henry VIII's nose on his image on the coin, giving him the nickname Old Copper Nose. So there's a thing. Anyway, this is no time for fun. Look, England, and indeed Europe, were already suffering from inflation, a phenomenon they simply didn't understand or know how to deal with. In the 1540s, Henry's devaluation greatly accelerated inflation and irresponsibly multiplied the pain. And the result of all this was enormous misery, creating a flood of itinerant poor with which society was simply unable to cope. Some of the blame of this must at least be laid at Henry's door. Whereas Henry has inherited sound finances and a bit of a nest egg from his dad, his own legacy was an empty bank and substantial debt. The number of people who died as a result of Henry's rule and tyranny has gone as high as 72,000, and historian Jasper Ridley's estimate of 60,000 executed for crimes of all sorts. Just one more point, which is Henry and his foreign adventures, coming on the back of Zach's episodes last week. To use the phrase foreign policy is to flatter the incoherent set of reactions it represents. Henry's desire was to emulate the glories of his great predecessor, Henry V. The comparison can only accentuate the later Henry's failure. During his early years, Ferdinand of Aragon ran diplomatic rings round the young man, and the result of three forays into France were a massive expenditure which resulted in one victorious skirmish and the very temporary capture of a couple of towns. Probably worse was Henry's meddling in Scottish affairs, where he may have missed an opportunity to bring about the marriage of Edward and Mary, and instead he ended up embroiling England in another expensive and irrelevant war. In military terms, England was and remained a pygmy in comparison to the Empire and to France, Even in the development of the Navy, Professor Rogers, who wrote the definitive naval history of Britain, is firm that there's no sign in Henry of a strategic vision. Absolutely finally, Henry's incompetent foreign policy and the Reformation combined to put England in a dangerously isolated position on Henry's death. When I say absolutely finally, what I really mean is absolutely penultimately. It is argued for Henry that his reign sees the transformation of English administration from medieval government into modern. Of course, this is Cromwell's work first of all, very little of the credit can go to Henry. It's also enormously overstated. Actually, Cromwell is an example of a superbly efficient and effective minister who drives the business of government through his own talents after the medieval model. Yes, final show administration is definitively moved from the king's household, but it ends up in the jewel house for crying out loud. It's not in Henry's reign that the potential for the exchequer to coordinate financial management is at last recognised. As far as the regions of his kingdoms are concerned, any argument that includes Ireland needs to look at how that all turned out in Elizabeth's reign, 
and in the north of England, the borders were left dangerously weakened. All of this is not to say that Henry's reign was without achievement, and of course I've gone for all the negatives, because that's my job. Henry was a great builder, although relatively little remains today, because actually a lot of it was built shoddily in a great hurry. It's generally agreed that the vast majority of Henry's own subjects at the time did not feel him to be a bad king, but instead mourned the passing of a man they considered every inch a king, to the point of reverence. But maybe a bit of distance has made us realise the terrible price Henry made his subjects pay for his very limited achievements. Oakley Doakley, how was that for you all? Was that nasty enough? Actually, it was quite interesting that as I flew around the web in the writing of this piece, it never failed to amaze me just how angry people can still get about the religious side of this, how much division there still is over something that surely should be ancient history now. There are articles that could have been written 300 years ago. Anyway, I think I've done my best to bring Henry down. So let's see what I can do to build him up. To do this, I am going to broadly follow the same structure as my predecessor so that you can match the arguments up. But first of all, let me establish a couple of rules. Firstly, Whatever actions are initiated by government in Henry's reign, Henry gets full credit or full blame. I have two reasons for this. One, I think that Professor G.W. Bernard established pretty clearly in his book The King's Reformation that Henry took a personal and close interest in all aspects of the Reformation and that the decisions were his. There is plenty of evidence also that Henry was perfectly capable of taking a close interest in detail of government policy of all kind. Yes, there are those stories of Wolsey having to make a young king pay attention, and in the early years, Henry devolved much to Wolsey. But he did not, as we know, devolve the things that mattered to him, such as the divorce. Nor did he fail to step in when required, as we saw with the amicable Grant. But as both Cromwell and Cranmer discovered... After Wolsey, he never again allowed him to step even as far away as that. It is inconceivable that Cromwell introduced any government policy through Parliament that Henry had not agreed to, the poor laws, for example. Cromwell and Cranmer were also to discover that Henry was intellectually perfectly capable of forensically unpicking an argument and destroying it. Even where Henry didn't exercise direct control, it is Henry that directs strategy. And in all cases, he was perfectly capable of demanding policies be stopped or reversed. No one also argues that Henry had anything other than a powerful and forceful will. And anyway, every head of state or CEO of a company is responsible for picking the officials that carry out policy. That's part of their responsibility. And they're responsible for what those officials do. So that's rule one. Henry gets credit or blame for everything. The second point is that Henry must be judged by the standards of the day. Now, I am not going to be arguing that Henry is an angel, far from it, but I will be arguing that a fair proportion of the criticism Henry attracts derives by either attaching today's values to yesterday's world or failing to acknowledge the context of the day. The idea, for example, that Henry VIII was unusually vicious in his executions is a massive exaggeration, and if you compare him to the activities of some of his peers on the continent, well, he's a pussycat. To start with Henry's character then, I don't propose to try and change anything that has been said except to argue about their significance. The previous speaker has rather nastily belittled the importance of the skills and talents Henry famously had, the attributes of the Renaissance prince. I'm not going to get upset and do any brown paper bag tearing about that, but I would note that there is a context point here already. 
These attributes were considered much more important back then than they might be now. They materially affected the way his great men interacted with him. They were critical to his authority. Henry's father taught him a very important lesson, that to be a king, you must look and act like a king. And Henry did this in spades. We underestimate the importance of this at our peril. The prestige of the monarchy had rarely stood higher than it did on Henry VIII's death. And Henry's ability to glorify the monarchy, to imbue it with the magnificence and luster, paid coin every day of Henry's life in political value. Henry's ability to communicate has thereby been downplayed, as though it was something of little significance, as though it was simply unworthy cheating to, for example, sell the message of the royal supremacy and the break with Rome. We might not have liked the policy, but it was absolutely critical to create unity in his realm, to bring his people to stand behind his chosen policy. And in this, he was outstandingly successful. The English would stick to the break with Rome as an article of faith for centuries. So my point is that Henry's talents, his ability to project and communicate, are not in some way unimportant or secondary. They were the essence of kingship and they made his rule and his foreign diplomacy more effective thereby. I'm not going to deny that Henry was also an egoist. He had a very flexible conscience and a thoroughly handy ability to transfer blame from his own shoulders to those of his ministers, and on occasion to then separate the relevant head from said shoulders, as it happens, which is, you know, unfortunate. He was a man who expected the world to dance to his tune and was volatile and dangerous when the world did not oblige. Okay. Fair enough. But look, what did we expect? How many good medieval and modern kings do we know who were gentle souls much given to self-deprecation and humbly asking for forgiveness? Write me a list. It probably has Edward II and Henry VI on it. Both thoroughly lovely people, no doubt. Thoroughly rotten kings to boot. Henry was king in a time when that meant he stood next to God in the great chain of being. When his name was spoken anywhere, his subjects doffed their caps. It is unsurprising that Henry was a little arrogant. Henry was required to be self-confident, resilient and determined in order to be effective and do his job, and he was all those things. I might say that at least he felt it necessary to have a conscience which needed to be flexible. If we're really talking about a tyrant here, you know, a proper tyrant, I don't think we'd be worrying about how flexible their conscience was, we'd be remarking on its absence. And if that meant Henry visited his displeasure with some ruthlessness... There's nobody around him at court that did not know the potential price and the danger of being there at court. Remember the advice that John Blunt gave to his son, Henry's companion in studies, Lord Mountjoy. Live right wisely, and never to take the state of baron upon them if they may leave it from them, nor desire to be great about princes, for it is dangerous. This was fully understood and accepted throughout the early modern world. While we're on what we'd expect from a king, there's another piece of context worth bearing in mind. Understanding the strength of his personal presence. Kingship was personal in the 16th century. It always had been personal. And even across the centuries, Henry exerts a fascination we can't avoid. We can't take our eyes off him and the world he created. How much more fascinating he must have been in his presence. By all accounts, he exerted charm, bonhomie, personal magnetism, manipulative, sure, but a great communicator. There are also a few personal qualities Henry possessed, on the other hand, that get surprisingly little mention, 
and for which he gets insufficient credit. Here's a quote from a 20th century historian called Stanley Bindoff. Qualities, good and evil alike, added up to extreme effectiveness. Not the least of his master craftsman's secrets was an eye for a tool. Henry had no fear of competition, of being made to look small, and he surrounded himself with the most talented people in his kingdom. As Bindoff suggests, he had a genius for appointing talented public servants. True enough, some of them paid a hefty price in the end, though they had a gilded existence before the axe fell. But surely one of the critical talents of a leader is the ability to pick the best people and allow them to then get on with the job. That Henry did. He also did it by flying in defiance of conventional social rules. All about him, his privileged nobility shuddered with horror as he appointed public servants on the basis of talent rather than birth. The chinless were accorded their traditional roles in council, military and as the king's companions, but if a job needed doing, Henry went for skill. Nor are we just talking about Wolsey and Cromwell here, though they're the most obvious. Henry employed such men in his chamber and on his council too. Henry held another leadership skill that is often ignored. He was open at all times to debate and to challenge on his policy from his council, and he did not demand or get yes-men. These men of talent were not ciphers, blindly carrying out their master's bidding. Henry's views were constantly challenged by his councillors. Think of Cranmer's firm put-down of his supreme head's comments on the bishop's books. There were no dire consequences. Norfolk pleaded with him to change his aggressive policy at the start of the Pilgrimage of Grace. Henry saw reason, and he did so. He backed off. This is a point it's very easy to forget. It's easy to assume that Henry's execution of his ministers is connected with a fear of debate. It was not. All Henry's councillors and companions had agency as far as they wanted it, as long as they acted within the king's strategy. While we're on defiance of convention, it leads me to other characteristics. Determination, resilience, persistence. Now, Henry is usually and quite rightly presented as a man of conventional values and ambitions, and that is to a large extent true. He expected to be surrounded also by his nobility. They were his companions rather than bureaucrats. He yearned to emulate his medieval heroes of the past, men like Henry V, as we keep saying. But he was also surprisingly unconventional, surprisingly capable of challenging accepted norms. His reign was one of constant change, of a much deeper, more fundamental kind than the preceding century, despite the chaos of the Wars of the Roses, which basically impacted only the top layers of society. So, I know we tend to focus with chin-wobbling outrage on the fact that Henry flew in the face of a thousand years of tradition by separating us from the Pope, and we'll come to the rights and wrongs of that later. But seriously, don't you think Henry deserves some respect for that, as well as a chorus of outrage? Whether you consider it a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing, I, for one, admire the courage, determination, and sheer force of nature that whatever the obstacles, whatever the tradition, Henry would not be denied he would not be denied. He took on the biggest, richest, oldest, most arrogant organisation in the Western world at the time, and to the astonishment of all his peers across Christendom, he would not back down. I feel a Tom Petty song coming on, even a banner, a march or two. As far as Henry's male heir obsession is concerned, it's a little difficult to argue that he was anything other than, well, obsessed by it. And the result was that two women at least suffered for it. I'm not going to offer any justification of his treatment of Anne Boleyn, but I might point out that in his treatment of his daughter, he was entirely conventional and traditional. That didn't make it any easier for poor Mary, 
But while it'll make me unpopular, Mary's mother also put her own feelings before those of her daughter. Which she was entitled to do, of course, but nonetheless she did. But the point is, however it might offend modern sensibilities, this was a patriarchal society. Henry was at the head of the family and children were required to submit. There's no ifing and butting and slamming of doors allowed. Henry would have had her submission as any other Tudor father would. And once she did so submit, Mary spent a very happy few years at her father's court, fully integrated into it and accepted. Let me also point out that I often hear that comment that Henry might have trusted better to his daughters, given the outcome of two perfectly competent queens that followed him. But this is 2020 hindsight. The previous bloke was daft enough to refer to Henry I. What? A schoolboy error, surely, given that Henry I's attempt to place Empress Matilda on the throne led to the anarchy when it was said that Christ and his saints slept. And that would have been the only example from English history that Henry had in front of him, except possibly Saxburger, hardly a household name. And remember also the chaos of the Wars of the Roses. Only one generation away, Henry's father was obsessed about establishing secure foundations for his dynasty. It is not surprising that his son inherited the same mania. And a failure to understand that is a failure to understand context and judge the man in the standards of his time. As far as the separation of the English church from Pope is concerned, let me just say that the lament that it is a bad thing that England lost a spiritual head in the Pope, independent of the English church and state, is entirely a matter of opinion. Nothing to do with historical fact whatsoever. It is notable that in Mary's reign just a few years later, the fiercest resistance to the re-imposition of traditional religion was to the idea of the return to papal allegiance. By Elizabeth's time, the title of supreme head was reduced to governor and spiritual leadership would come from the archbishop and convocation in practice. Now, I am inclined to accept the viewpoint of the reformers that there were many advantages to the new arrangement and see no reason to lament. There were pretty clear benefits that flowed from it. England was traditionally far from being at the centre of papal concerns and priorities, physically far away and politically marginal. Now, the church in England was focused solely on the needs of the community it served and could be responsive to that community and more directly influenced by it, as indeed the events of the following reigns would demonstrate when Elizabeth built a broad church that accommodated the vast majority of her subjects. In the 17th century, there were never more than 60,000 of the English that would abjure the English church due to adherence to the rights of Rome, which is about 1% of the population at that time. In the context of the growth throughout Europe of the nation-state, the days of an international Christendom were effectively gone forever with the European Reformation, whatever Henry might have done. One of the quotes from A.F. Pollard makes the point that England stood on the edge of a period of transformation from a bit-part player to one of the world's most powerful nations. The Church of England was a powerful part of that equation in bringing unity and focus. The Church of England was Henry's creation. When he died it was far from finished, but it would not have existed without him. Three more points on the Reformation. One of the most persistent complaints is that the English Reformation was simply a land grab, not a bottom-up process driven by faith as it was in Germany and this in some way is supposed to undermine its very value. The English Reformation, as it played out, was indeed largely top-down, given the timing of Henry's need for a divorce, so that the break with Rome was relatively early. But that is not to say it would not have become bottom-up. The study of wills shows that reformist influence was already being felt in parts of the country, 
In Scotland, John Knox and the dynamism of Calvinism would later show just how possible it was for Reformation to occur even when it was fiercely resisted by the monarch, as when Scotland accepted the Reformed Church. My point is that while Henry's demand for a divorce led to a top-down process, there's no doubt that demand for reform was already in his kingdom and would, without doubt, have grown. It's also not true to say that Henry merely produced Catholicism without the Pope and that his interest was therefore purely practical and material and political, nothing to do with belief or theology. In Henry's reign, the concept of purgatory, veneration of the relics and pilgrimage, for example, were immediately rejected and other sacraments examined. Now, I don't say whether this is religiously a good or bad thing. All I'm saying is that England began the work of making the Reformation in her own image straight away. Henry took theology very seriously, too seriously possibly. Now, it takes a while to later in Elizabeth's reign for that to play through. But it starts not just with Henry, but with reformers like Cranmer, Latimer and many others. It is without doubt that Henry gave his subjects a hard time in developing doctrine around his Reformation. He consistently failed to recognise that some of the disagreements and debate he disliked so much among his people were a result of his own changing position. But look, this is fiercely complicated stuff. It's very typical of the English that the new religion evolves and emerges over a long time and makes compromises along the way to try to accommodate the views of as many as possible. My point is that for both Henry and many of his kingdom, the Reformation was indeed a cleansing and deep change to the way religion was conducted, not simply a land grab. Henry took a leading role in that process of reform all the way through. Third point, if you've been counting, we come to the accusation that Henry stole the wealth of the church, an argument that is often produced like something of a trump card. By Henry's reign, the church held about 25% of England's wealth. So, in summary, the wealth of the church was wildly and ridiculously excessive. It is generally agreed that monasticism, while far from dead, had lost its vigour, had largely lost its intellectual and educational role and much of its cultural relevance, and yet there were 900 of them. It was accepted at the time, at very least, that monasticism was in desperate need of reform. Now, there was a long tradition of thought, certainly from Wycliffe onwards, that looked to the prince to reform the church. So what Henry did was not theft. It was without doubt hideously disruptive, but which was well within his rights, and surely the church had been given long enough to put its own house in order. It's a perfectly reasonable argument that the wealth of the church was excessive, and part of it could be better distributed, and that monasteries were no longer needed, and with the new theology had lost their role. And what were the consequences of this redistribution? I'm much less inclined, I have to say, to defend Henry against the charge that he could have done a lot more than he did with the wealth of the church that he took. Not enough was done without doubt. However, as previously noted in these pages, much of what the reformers would like to have achieved did come about. By the end of the 16th century, it's estimated 400 further schools had been added to England stock, for example, much of it through local pride and local initiative. It was argued in the 19th century by Cobbett that the rich had removed a vital crutch for the poor, and we now know that to be a massive exaggeration. Probably barely £9,000 of the monastery's wealth went to the poor. And uniquely, England developed a solution to that. Henry supported Cromwell's move to make the state responsible for support of the poor through local parishes. 
The poor law have a bad reputation now, but at the time this was revolutionary. It demonstrated a serious sense of social responsibility. It's another example of Henry's ability to support and implement change and innovation. Yes, it was Cromwell's initiative, but he acted as Henry's minister and he acted with Henry's approval. In redistributing the wealth of the church to secular hands, England also nurtured a rich, powerful, independent yeomanry, gentry and merchant class in a process that created a counterpoise to the power of the king and the state. So in a hundred years' time, we will not be talking about the triumph of royal absolutism in England as we will be in France. We'll be talking about its failure. And as Pollard says, the growth of parliamentary democracy. Much of that is due to the strength of the secular society enriched by the dissolution. Now, not for a moment would I try and argue that Henry consciously set out to achieve such a thing. He'd been horrified. But he, without doubt, took a tactical decision that led to that outcome. Of the destruction of priceless works of art, well, I confess I would have been horrified and would be horrified now if all our beautiful churches were destroyed. But I might reflect that it is beyond our competence to judge the relative importance of these works of art compared to a deeply felt conviction that the practice inherent in them was offensive. I cannot judge such a thing, but I can accept that the spiritual health of every individual soul might be considered a far higher and more important priority than physical objects. And if the religious leader's view was that worship of icons was wrong, well, so be it. Who am I to argue and to judge? Fourth and final point on the Reformation for the moment. The Bible in English. It was Henry who ensured that the English could at last read the word of God in their own language. At last, worship and study could be understood by a much wider community. And thereby, learning to read was also encouraged. Bible reading may not be the most popular pastime now, but it most assuredly was in the 16th century. Let us turn then to tyranny. Just to restate the measures, we are defining tyranny as rule in defiance of law, a ruler that makes the right of the state inferior to his own and who rules cruelly and oppressively. I suspect I might concede that by the end of his reign, Henry had just slipped his toe over the lines into tyranny. The very end of his big toe, just maybe, possibly, perhaps. But it's a pretty poor sort of tyranny, if so. And on a list of tyrants, our Henry's going to be well down at the very end of it. As far as the law is concerned, I accept the point about two laws that are rescinded in Edward's reign, but surely that doesn't alone count as tyranny. These were laws passed in Parliament through due process, after all. The outrage about the treason law of 1534, in the words of Bill and Ted, is utterly bogus. People have been executed before 1534 for speaking treason. It's clear that the statute of proclamations was only ever used for administrative expediency when speed was required. Where Henry does come unstuck, maybe, is in panicking over the retrospective law in respect of Catherine Howard, but it's one slip in a specific circumstance. In fact, Henry does nothing to pervert the independence of the legal profession in general. He doesn't go about replacing judges that displease him. He doesn't seek to pervert the process of the judiciary in general, despite a few high-profile cases we'll talk about in a moment. As far as Parliament is concerned, it is true that Henry would have been most put out if they'd turned him down flat on anything. But the impression that Parliament is completely compliant is wrong, as many lengthy debates on key issues demonstrate. The six articles, for example, results in a long and open argument, often in defiance of the king, and resignations when the vote goes the king's way. Henry is largely innocent of any structured attempt 
to subvert the judicial process or constitutional process. We get wound up in a few high-profile cases. Only in this tiny number of high-profile cases does he cross the line. But it's not just that we should clear Henry of most of the negatives. There is a positive story of Henry's reign that far outweighs all else. The upshot of this is that the entire Reformation is debated and endorsed in Parliament. Parliament emerges from Henry's reign with a range of competence wildly enhanced, with a breadth of competence unimaginable to previous kings and subjects. Up to and during Henry VII's reign, Parliament is hardly part of England's constitution at all. It may be called by the monarch as and when the prince requires, and not before, and many years might pass without it being called. There was no requirement. That will never be the case again after the Reformation Parliament. It is now an immovable and fundamental part of the English government and constitution. Now, all of this is open to the point that there is no evidence that Henry consciously set out to create a new constitution and a more powerful parliament. But the evidence is there that Henry never sought to assume the powers of parliament for himself. Indeed, he famously declared that his estate was never more powerful than as the king in parliament. He was a firm believer in the importance of Parliament. He was a supporter of its role. Henry was no absolutist, and therefore he was no tyrant. He ruled in accordance with the rules and customs of his realm. Although the decision he makes in using Parliament are probably tactical rather than strategic again, nonetheless, the choice that he made was the biggest step on the path to parliamentary democracy since Timon de Montfort. Which brings us to the executions, to the terror. The story goes that England was swept with arbitrary prosecutions, a reign of terror which has terrified subjects creeping through the darkened, rain-swept streets that run with the blood of innocence. Of all the representations of Henry's England, it seems to me that this is where we apply modern values most liberally and unfairly and fail to apply any sort of context. To unpick it a little bit. Firstly, we are horrified by the severity of the penalties. There's always a description of the terrible pain inflicted on people that are simply trying to exercise what we now see as a perfectly reasonable right. But that was not the way it was seen then. In Henry's Europe, uniformity was a requirement, not an option. All over Christendom, heretics were burned in the name of conformity. Plus, while we recoil at the horror of the seemingly casual and needless pain inflicted, again, in this England and Henry are entirely unexceptional within Christendom. St Augustine of Hippo himself had argued that to treat heretics more leniently than forgery, which at the time was the death sentence, would be ludicrous. The historian Lacey Baldwin-Smith makes the point, Only in this framework of universal suffering does the stark horror of Tudor punishment and the king's vengeance become intelligible. The 16th century traitor and heretic not only deserved to die in pain, but their lingering pain was necessary for the example and terror of others and as reward for the virtuous. The use of reams of horrific examples of torture and execution in an attempt to denounce Henry as an exceptional tyrant without wanting to get overheated about it, I think are the most dishonest of the articles that litter the web and history books. This is not a stain on England's history. This is early modern Europe for you. These are the realities of life in European society in the 16th century. Then there are the numbers. I should just mention two numbers that will appear in articles from time to time. One derived from a contemporary Anglican cleric called William Harrison, repeated in Hollinshed's histories, who said that Henry VIII executed 72,000 great thieves, petty thieves and rogues. 
It is a completely unresearched, unprovable figure. Based on no evidence, it's an absurdly high number and any article that uses it should be banned. Only slightly more credible is Jasper Ridley's estimate of 60,000 executed for crimes of all sorts, which seems equally incredible. It's an extrapolation of assumption based on assumption on a grand scale. Plus, of course, there's no reason to suppose that whatever the number was would have been any different in the reigns before or after Henry's. Both figures were openly executions of anybody for any crime. These were local decisions locally made on the basis of existing law. So, just to warn you, those figures are fake news. What we can hang our collective hat on a bit more comfortably is that Henry VII ordered the burning of 10 heretics in 24 years, Henry VIII, 81 heretics in 38 years, Elizabeth I, 5 in 44 years, Mary, 280 people in 5 years. Let's change Elizabeth's number to about 300 in 44 years to be totally fair, though that includes treason, but we'll come to that at some point in the future. We'll have some numbers in Europe later, but let me tell you that on these numbers in England alone, Henry is a pussycat, a soft-hearted, sentimental old booby. And this is at the time of unprecedented change and upheaval, religious, social, political. Ah, I hear you say, but what about all the executions for treason, the horrors of the pilgrimage of grace? Well, 883 people come under the treason laws of 1534 in the final 13 years of Henry's reign. Of these, less than one-third are actually convicted. And look, close to 200 of those are killed for bearing arms against the king in the pilgrimage of grace. No Tudor subject would for a moment have questioned the king's right, and indeed good sense, to do that, that have nodded approvingly at his good sense. In Wyatt's much smaller rebellion... Queen Mary would execute 90. Elizabeth would execute 900 rebels. Now, this doesn't make us like Henry on any personal level. He displays a vicious determination to see the pilgrims executed in the most horrible ways. But again, welcome to early modern Europe. It's not a place for the faint-hearted. The story here is not about a reign of terror and tyranny. It is the story of how firm and determined government and leadership, to be sure ruthless and at times unattractively vindictive, how Henry's leadership saved us from a level of violence that could and should have been far worse. Ah, you may say, but it was Henry himself who caused all this change. It was Henry who introduced the Reformation. If he'd made like Spain, Portugal, Italy, simply repressed it, then not even this paltry level of violence would have gone on. Well, quite apart from whether or not the Reformation delivered benefits of itself, what is overwhelmingly likely is that England would not have avoided the turbulence of the Reformation, whatever Henry had done. Here is Jack Scarisbrick again. Of course, this would have happened in some form or other anyway. Nothing could have insulated England permanently against continental Protestantism. In southern Europe, where the church emperor monarch stepped heavily on heresy, disruption is still massive. There's a lot of rubbish quoted about the Inquisition, but the very lowest estimate has it in Spain alone that 1% of the 125,000 people tried by the Spanish church tribunals were actually executed, which is about 1,250. This is over the life of the Inquisition, 1542, to the last execution in 1826. Others have it as of 150,000 prosecuted by the Spanish Inquisition and between three and 5,000 executed. 
The wild figures are up to 300,000, but I think we should set those aside. But this, though, is ignoring Portuguese and Roman inquisitions. And in Austria, 100,000 Protestants would be forced from their homes. In the Spanish Netherlands in the 17th century, 150,000 were forced to leave. I could go on. I repeat, the story here is how Henry's leadership and grim determination saved England from a far worse chaos. Aha! But the saintly Thomas More, the brave Anne Boleyn, the loyal Cromwell, what of them? Here, surely, is tyranny. Without doubt, in cases like these, Henry expected a conviction, whatever the truth, and justice was not done, however much the process of the law was followed. Though I might point out that Thomas More was only trying to get off on a technicality. But, look, I can see the point. But we must see all of these again, in context and in proportion. Once again, all of these people knew the rules of the game. They played for high stakes and they knew the potential penalties, even poor Catherine Howard. We cannot praise and celebrate Anne Boleyn for her skill as a court politician without then accepting that she knew and must accept the consequences. Margaret Pole, true enough, is a hideously unfair piece of brutality, it must be said. However, while none of this makes us like or admire Henry, all of these high-profile deaths are morally complicit, with the exception of Margaret Pole. All of them manoeuvred and schemed to have each other destroyed and executed. All of them were every bit as ruthless as the person they were trying to manipulate. They lived by the sword. They could hardly complain if they died by it, after they tried to cause their opponent's death. Two more points before I wrap up. Firstly, on Henry and the machinery of war. Now, I bow to Professor Rogers' judgment that Henry had no long-term strategy to develop sea power in line with a strategy to extend the power of the English nation based on a seaborne empire. Although, as Rogers himself is concerned, that is his assessment rather than a provable fact, but actually, I entirely accept it. But even despite that, Henry fully earned the right to be called father of the English and British Navy because it is he that invests in the Navy. He transforms the Navy from a handful of ships to a permanent fleet of ships. It is he that creates, for the first time, a permanent institution to manage the Navy, unique in Europe outside Venice. And this institution will become the Navy Board. In this institution, real experts and professionals come together to discuss the needs of a Navy. Real experts. Yes, they cheat and bits of kit accidentally on purpose, fall off the back of the cart and end up spooking in their private warehouses. But the Navy will prosper under their care and England will prosper on the back of it. Henry does the same in other branches of warfare, in the professionalism of the armoury at the Tower, for example. But it would also be true to say that in terms of military success, England always lags behind its neighbours. We are into the name me one great British general that isn't called Marlborough, Cromwell or Rullington conversation and don't try Redvers Buller on me. As far as Henry's foreign adventures generally are concerned, guilty as charged really, Henry plays out his ambitions in an unstructured and entirely unstrategic way and spends far too money on the way, especially in the 1540s when his disastrous overspending does indeed make inflation much worse. So, agreed, nul point. But again, a bit of context. Habsburg and Valois spent four wars messing about in northern Italy in a war that impoverished Italy and played its part along with the church of relegating it from cultural and political leadership of Europe to a backwater. In so doing, they not only spent a fortune that made Henry's expenditure look like a quiet Sunday visit to the bun shop, 
They played dangerously with the strategic priorities that should have been obsessing them, the existential threat from the Ottoman Empire and, as far as Charles V was concerned, the spread of Protestantism, which he hated. Francis I achieved precisely nothing, despite all his expenditure of treasure, except, all oh, the loss of French influence in northern Italy. Bravo! So, fair enough, no cigar for Henry. But again, he is acting entirely in the spirit and the context of the time. And let us look at the positives again. England was a small, damp island off the coast of the place where everything important happens. And yet, Henry played the game as a core part of European diplomacy for over 30 years. He invaded France three times of that response and conclusively defeats the one-invasion attempt from France. I mean, I accept that to the modern mind it's all pointless messing about and I won't pretend there's a clear policy and strategy other than I want to be Henry V. But he plays a poor hand with reasonable skill, certainly when it comes to diplomacy, where by the end he's a hardened professional at all the cut and thrust of it all. And I should point out that he had none of the advantages his hero Henry V had, i.e. a divided France, a super-strong ally in Burgundy and the most deadly military tool in Europe. The other last and final point is Elton's argument that during Henry's reign, England's government is substantially and qualitatively transformed and becomes part of the modern rather than the medieval world. There is truth in the point that Cromwell is another in a long line of effective medieval-style principal ministers rather than a modern-style minister, and that Elton's argument has been overstated. But there are clear steps forward. This is partly in the organs of government, a structured, settled privy council, a secretariat, growth of central financial administration under the Court of Augmentations. But it's not just that. Henry and Cromwell remove a bunch of medieval franchises in the north of England and the marches to create a more coherent, unified English state. They bring Wales and northern England definitively within one English state. They create a direct relationship between gentry and crown that will be the model for English governance into the future. And with the surrender and re-grant policy, Henry and Cromwell came up with the only policy in Ireland that had any chance of working, and did have a real chance of working for a while. It's not Henry that plants the seeds, it is the policy's failure under Elizabeth that will create 300 years of pain for both Ireland and England. And finally, before you say this is Cromwell's work, A, Henry gets the credit and blame for everything, as I said, and B, it's Henry that creates the Privy Council and Secretariat, not Cromwell. It is Henry that creates the first permanent naval board. And C, it is Henry that creates the pressure for reform by relentlessly demanding that his bureaucracy serves him well. Let me summarise. I don't particularly like or admire Henry the man. I would not choose him as a moral example to follow. But he deserves to be judged by the standards of his time, by its moral priorities and by the expectations of his role, not by whether we like him or not. Henry was no tyrant. He ruled according to the laws and customs of his country. The record of his royal justice and the executions carried out in his name compares favourably with most countries in Europe, despite a few high-profile cases. Alongside the qualities we dislike about him, vindictiveness, egoism, deceit, moral flexibility... Henry had many qualities that made him a very effective king. Courage, determination, resilience, ruthlessness, and the ability to back talent wherever he found it. Henry often thought and acted tactically, and for that reason he'll never quite compare with an Alfred the Great or a William Pitt or a William Ewart Gladstone. 
and sometimes his tactical decisions were poor, his endless expenditure on war and the economic chaos it brought, for example. But actually, usually, his tactical decisions worked out and led to impressive long-term consequences. His belief in Parliament and his use of it to rubber-stamp his reforms encouraged parliamentary democracy. His redistribution of the excessive wealth of the church built a stronger, more broadly-based, prosperous society. His ruthless enforcement of conformity with his mild and judicious reformation saved England from the chaos, death and repression of the European religious wars. The wars of religion in France, for example, from 1562, may have cost millions of lives. His contemporary Francis I acted with far greater savagery in an attempt to repress Protestantism and yet failed in the attempt. Henry's firmness and theological moderation played a big part in preventing that chaos in England. And incidentally, a hundred years of conflict in Europe would lead to a principle that entirely justified his reformation and indeed justified the original imposition of Christianity on the pagans in England in the 7th century. Curious religio, aeus regio, the prince determines the religion. Henry just got there a hundred years earlier than everybody else. Henry's investment in the navy, his setting up of permanent institutions to support it, built a tool that would create England the world power. In short, the bad, vicious king is a construct of modern values, not those of his time. He was far from a great king, but he was every bit a king and an effective one, and one who created a new, divided, but ultimately stronger England. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Anyway, there are the pros and cons as well as I can put them, though I'm sure you'll have many other views and many other things that I've forgotten. So, here is your checklist, your own personal checklist, all of which incidentally involve coming along to the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Number one, come along and vote at thehistoryofengland.co.uk where you can also dribble over the prize of original coins from Hall's Hammered Coins. Number two, come and record your views on the shiny new History of England forum and you can have a full, frank and friendly exchange of views about Henry VIII. I will also run a chat on the Facebook site, but some people don't like Facebook, which is why I've started a forum. Number three, if you are a member, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, would you believe, and try your hand at the Henry VIII Jumbo Quiz. We are talking jumbo, well, 17 questions, where you can also dribble over the extra member's prize, original coins from Hall's Hammered Coins. Number four, do all of this by the closing date of the 2nd of August. Number five, wait patiently, or indeed impatiently, for the results on the 5th of August, which will be given out alongside the final Roman Bath episode, incidentally. And you can see if you are one of the four lucky winners. So, happy voting, everyone, and thanks in advance for taking part. Don't forget to check out History in Technicolor, by the way, which we launched last week. And I wait in joyous expectation to hear your views of Henry. Have a great fortnight, everyone, and see you on the 5th of August. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 